um, various groups within uh, Buddhism put various different emphases upon or um, different things. And any time that we put a particular emphasis on one particular thing and make that the goal, then we're generally neglecting other things that um, the Eightfold Noble Path of the Buddha is um, actually quite a variety of skills. And that Anapanasati, when practiced correctly, develops all of those skills, one in turn from the other. Now, um, in the West, it seems that, that they put a lot of emphasis upon what is uh, referred to as samadhi, and basically what they're talking about is concentration, which is not really samadhi at all. It's kind of important to get a really good understanding of what samadhi, Pali word, actually means. And what it actually means is gathering together the factors. So when you have all of those other factors that we were talking about gathered together, that's samadhi. And yet most people are neglecting those other factors, trying to gain concentration. And so they're missing out on a few things because they don't have um, some of the ingredients missing. And in fact, that's... Um, a really important way of changing our view about what is samadhi. That samadhi means together, together. An example of that uh, in real life would be um, a Native American teepee. You have all of those ridge poles of the teepee. But if they're just ridge poles, the teepee won't stand. Those ridge poles have to be tied together close to one end. And because they're all tied together, that makes that a samati point. And then the other end of each of the poles can be established in the ground and put into arrangement so that now the TP is very strong. It will not fall over. You can see the same thing with a three-legged or a four-legged stool that two-legged stools are not uh, uh, all of the factors. So it's unstable. But if you have a three-legged stool, then uh, you have kind of a tripod situation, and that's the weakest, is a tripod, three items. But a, a, a chair that has four legs that are equal equally long, then um, the chair is even more stable. If one of the legs is short, then it winds up being uh, a, a, a three-legged stool anyway. It just rocks back and forth over which is going to be the third leg. But with um, uh, uh, a four-legged stool, is going to be more stable. So we have to think about samadhi then is not just concentration, or in fact, it's got nothing to do with concentration at all. It's got to do with gathering together the factors that we need. And in fact, in some cases, concentration 
is exactly opposite of samati. An example of that is frozen concentrated orange juice. Right? Does anybody drink frozen concentrated orange juice? No. Concentrated orange juice is not samati orange juice. That when you drink the orange juice, you want to put the water back in it to make it complete and whole again. So this is a way of looking at samati from a completely different viewpoint because the Western mind has samati as a concentration. So when we recognize that no samati is actually gathering the factors together, we then need to look at what are the factors that we need together. And that's when we begin to see the Eightfold Noble Path in a new light. That in fact, many people, when they misunderstand samadhi, they understand in the Eightfold Noble Path is all of these factors are merely aspects to gain a concentrated mind. But the Buddha says that the um, Eightfold Noble Path um, is really nothing but uh, sama area samadhi or right noble uh, collected mind or a unified mind with its supports and features. Okay, what are the supports then if if samadhi is going to be uh, the the gathering together of the factors, in other words, the manufacturing of the stool, what are the various legs of this stool? And that once we have the mind that is fit, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa often calls it a mind fit for work. Uh, we can also think of it as a uh, an organized mind or a unified mind that's not split up. So if we look at it as an organized or unified mind, we can see how that operates in the sense that if I'm telling a lie, then my mind is broken between the truth and that lie. That now I'm a duality inside. I've got two features, but if I'm telling the truth, then I'm just one person. The next point would be that if I uh, want something that I don't have, then the idea is, is that I feel uh, incomplete, perhaps insecure. And if I get what I want, then I'll feel better because I feel whole. But if I were whole and complete com uh, in the first place, if the mind didn't want anything, then I wouldn't go out and harm someone to get it. I wouldn't steal it. Because I don't want it. So the unification of mind then leads to a natural high quality sila. So when uh, beginners or the introduction to the path is normally referred to the Eightfold Noble Path is referred to in three groups, Sila, Samati, Panya. And then in many cases, you could say that there is good reason to see that that's the correct order, Sila, Samati, Panya. But if we see Sila, Samati, Panya as a long-term goal, 
then we're missing the point that in fact sila can be had very quickly an example of that is, is that you're in a situation where there's very little sila an example of that would be an argument you're arguing with someone to make your shiva perfect all you have to do is walk away from that argument and it's over okay what we're meaning now is we're looking at very short-term things, not long-term things. And yet when sila is practiced in the long-term way, it winds up being something like that the young man becomes a monk and he's got to behave himself like a good monk for five years before he's taught any samadhi at all, which is not the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha is teaching samadhi excuse me, teaching sila only in the sense of sila in this present moment. And all we need to do is get in seclusion. That in fact, seclusion and sila are deeply related. Just getting away from it all and your sila is perfect right then and there. Okay. And uh, in that regard, there is no big job to do with sila, because all it has to do is isolate yourself. For instance, uh, you and your friends are a gang of bank robbers, and you're about to go in and rob the bank. And you're the getaway driver. And you recognize, wait a minute, all of this is wrong, and all I have to do is just get away from this group. And just by getting away from it, you're no longer the bank robber. You've changed your mind and you've made an action and you've gotten away with it, away from it. And because you've gotten away from it, you weren't in it. Okay, this is the way that we're looking at it is just get away from it. And that means your sila is okay. Um, this sequence of sila samati panya actually is in the sutras in that way. Uh, but they talk about it uh, in a way that is misleading uh, in the sense of talking about purification of sila. And then we say, oh, purification of sila means that I've been sila perfect for a long, long time. Right? No, we're still talking about this present moment. Purification of sila is, is, is your sila good right now or if i'm let us put it in the context of the meditator if i'm sitting in the meditation hall thinking about robbing that bank then my sila is not perfect in that moment but if i get my mind out of the thoughts of doing some harm thoughts of um, harming someone thoughts of um uh taking something that's not given all of those kind of thoughts of sila are in fact then not the sila so we have to have all of those kind of thoughts also out of the mind but as soon as they are out of the mind in that present moment now we are free we're free from sila our sila is um pure enough and then the next quality is purification of mind which would then uh in some regards be called samadhi 
but purification of mind is in fact gathering the factors together. One of the ways that we look at that is, is that uh, by having the mind that's pure, we've already removed much of the hindrances that would be possible to be in the mind. So removing the rest of the uh, hindrances could also be seen as uh, the sila of just getting away from all mental constructions. And then we start practicing Anapanasati. Well, to do this, we've already put the Eightfold Noble Path in practice in the regard that we already have the right view. Why? Because one's right view is to be free from uh, having harmful thoughts. And that we can see that. So one's right view is it's better to be free than it is to be encumbered with hindering thoughts. Also, sati has been there. What is sati? Is to wake up so that we can apply this new view. And apply it means that we're looking at the kind of thoughts that we have and recognizing that these thoughts are perhaps unwholesome and that they're unwholesome, uh, easily seen as unwholesome because they're not thoughts about what's happening right here, right now. Their thoughts about, oh, I'll feel better if I get that girl, or I'll feel better if I get that car, or I'll feel better if I get that job, or I'll feel better if I get that done. You know, this is the kind of thing, the thoughts that we have that keep the mind restless and um, dissatisfied. But if we start having really wholesome thoughts about this present moment, then the mind can be literally talked into being satisfied. That in this present moment, there's nothing to fear. That the only time there's something to fear is when I can think of something to be afraid of. And when I'm not thinking of anything to be afraid of, there's no reason to be afraid. And so we think about how safe it is. So we're looking at it in the sense now of the purification of the mind then is removing the rest of the hindrances that the sila itself is not removing and getting the mind uh, in a good state which is a, a state of sukha, and sukha is actually the opposite of the word sukha. Mind applied to the wholesome and sustaining the wholesome, and the mind free from hindrances, and the kind of thoughts that we have are gladdening thoughts, wholesome thoughts. We're actually now developing or gathering together the factors of the first jhana. There are five factors to the first jhana. Number one and the mo most important one is free from hindering thoughts, free from the past, free from the future, free from restlessness, free from worry, free from doubt, free from, oh, what's the point? Okay, and once we're free from those kind of thoughts, we can only be free from them by applying the mind to make sure that the mind is free from those kind of things, and then we sustain that freedom. So applied and sustained thought 
gladdening mind brings on the sukha. The sukha then, as it develops, develops into pity. And the pity and the sukha together with the mind means that now you've gotten the factors together for the first jhana. That's the samadhi. But there is no concentration in there anywhere other than perhaps using the word sustained thought in the sense that we keep having one wholesome thought after another, after another, after another. Okay. So then we say um, uh, purificate the third stage. And by the way, this sutta that I'm referring to is sutta number 24 with purification of sila, purification of uh, the mind, and then purification of view. Or, uh, and the view here that we're, uh, that we're purifying is the view about the self. Because when we're developing the first jhana, if we're really looking at what's going on, we can recognize that, um, that selfishness can occur, but it only occurs when the mind has hindrances. If there's no hindrances in the mind, then selfishness does not occur. And so the personality view, then the purification of view, is to come to understand that uh, I'm not a fixed entity that I keep changing. Sometimes I feel like a nut, sometimes I don't. Sometimes the mind is hindered, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's pure. Sometimes it's hindered in that way, sometimes hindered in those ways. But if we look closely, we can recognize that things are actually in, in process, in turmoil. It's um, a process. And so you can say that um, the process is changing things. We may need use the same words with it, like in English. We don't have a, a very noble vocabulary because there's been so people speaking it. What we have is an is an ordinary vocabulary that's got a lot of issues and problems with it. Uh, but the point is, is that <clears throat> things can go through a process and come out the other end as a new product. But if we are not watching that process, then we don't see the process as making the change. And therefore, we think that the item that went into the process and the item that came out of the process is the same item, where it's not the same. It's gone through a process, process of purification, for instance. Okay, an example of that would be distilled water that you've got a distillery. And that you put water in and then you heat it up and it goes to steam and then it's condensed back into water again, right? Except that the water now that's been distilled and has gone through the process is not the same kind of water that went into it. The new water that came out is just water. The water that went in was dirty. Okay. But if we don't understand the process, then in fact, we recognize that um, that I'm not just the water. I'm also the dirt that was in the water. 
And that's the way that normal people look at it. Is to say, I am, this is who I am. And in fact, that's not who they are. That's who they are, plus a lot of dirty things that can be distilled out. And when you distill stuff out, who I am becomes not important anymore. In fact, who I am is part of the dirt. That pond water is different than seawater, and seawater is different than rainwater, and rainwater is different from laboratory water, and laboratory water is different from toilet water, et cetera, like that. But you can take all of that water and distill it <clears throat> and come back to really pure water. And once it's pure water, you don't know whether that water came from the sea or from the toilet. Doesn't matter. That the distinctions we made, I am this water, is actually just the impurities. When we distill everything out, then that purity of view is that who I am is not important. But what is happening in this present moment uh, is best to pay attention to what's going on. So this Siva Samati Panya actually is a beginner's process. Once the panya starts in, now the path changes from an ordinary path to a noble path. You could go so far as to say there is an eightfold path that people start on. And if they're practicing correctly, then they gain enough wisdom to turn the whole path upside down. So now the path becomes uh, Panya, uh, Samati, Sila. So that Sila becomes the outcome, just the natural outcome of the correct path. So in the beginning for the child, we have to go against the child's greed or the goes against, we could even say goes against the child's nature. nature. The child gets angry and he wants to go beat up his childhood uh, neighbor's kid or friend or whatever, right? <clears throat> and so wanting to go harm someone, uh, as that child grows up, <clears throat> many people around will say that that's part of that kid's nature. He just wants to harm people. <clears throat> but in fact, his propensity to harm people is just a habit, but it's not who he is. He can change that. And he can distill that out. Right? This is the important point to be recognized is that uh, this moving from ordinary eightfold path into the noble eightfold path is basically the realization that I can change, that I'm not fixed. This is the new personality view. Now, in the West, uh, because of psychology and other things like this, this is not really that difficult to see. But if one is uh, raised in a very religious background, one of the qualities of religion has to do with the fact that the self is really fixed. In the sense that if you were a child and you hurt someone, God's going to punish you for that somehow, someday. 
which means that our past is carried on into the future through the present and that is accumulation of dirt in the sense of accumulation of actions. And so basically we're looking at now is, is that the habit patterns of the mind as we grow up means that we're just repeating the same thought patterns that lead to the same actions. So we could actually talk about it in the sense of reaction and people go around reacting, reacting, reacting. Now we think of reaction as a word that like he reacted to someone who was saying something like somebody called him a bad word and he reacted to that that's the way that we normally use the word reaction but i would like to introduce a new way of looking at the word reaction in the sense of he just goes around acting the same way and the stimulus is not the thing that caused the reaction it was the fact that that previous action was now set to cause the new action. And so we react because we're going action, reaction, 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 reaction like that. And it doesn't even have anything much to do with the stimulus. In other words, we're not responding to stimulus. We're responding to something that's happening inside the mind. That's what real reaction is. And the Buddha makes a big point about this in the teaching of Paticca Samapada, in the sense that we don't, as human beings, live in the real world. We do not react to the real world. That when the real world comes into the senses, like the word seeing, we can, when something comes in and we see it, then we process it. We try to figure out what it is that we've seen. And when we do figure out what it is that we've seen, then that's what we react to. We don't react to the reality of it. We react to what we've made of it. And guess how we make up stuff? We use our past. In other words, if I look out there and I see this object and I recognize it as a tree, Look at that word re-recognize. I recognize, which means I retake that image that's in the eyes and bring it into the mind as a tree. Which means actually <clears throat> humans will all agree that that object out there is a tree. Well, it, if they speak English. But the dogs don't recognize that tree as a tree. We live in South Thailand, which means that uh, there's a lot of coconut. The primary industry here on this island is coconut. And they, nobody climbs any trees to get the coconuts in Thailand. You know who does that? Apes, monkeys, a particular variety that's uh, known in South Thailand. They call them monkeys, but they're actually um, baboons. They have a very, very short tail. They have the red butt. They've got the great big jaws. Everything about this monkey is baboon. They're also very, very smart. The reason I'm bringing this up is because to that baboon or to that monkey, the tree is completely different than it is to us. 
In other words, as soon as you see that um, coconut tree, possibly the last thing you think of it is climbing it. But the monkey, as soon as he sees that tree, it's something to climb. He's got a completely different mentality about that tree. All right. When we look at it like that, then we recognize that most of us live in habit patterns. And we go around reacting to things the same way that we've always reacted. But when we begin to put some wisdom in that and begin to recognize that, hey, I do not have to react to this stimulus the same way that I have reacted, I can begin to do something new here. And so this is actually part of that purification of view. Okay, now that purification of view then completes it in the sense of purification of view now is wisdom. Now that we have that purity of view, we can change our view from, a no, from an, uh, an ordinary right view into a noble right view. And basically the noble right view is distinct from ordinary right view in the sense that right ordinary right view has seen things the way that they were, came to a conclusion and understand the things the way that they are. without taking into consideration that things change. Noble right view is keep on investigating, keep looking, keep noting, keep watching. And if you come to a conclusion, recognizing too, that's just a conclusion. That's just a mental construction but that the way to live is more in reality, to keep investigating reality over and over and over again. And what we're going to come up with eventually is um, a foundation, but on top of that, there's going to be a whole lot of not knowing, not sure, because we're not going to know everything. It doesn't matter how much you investigate, you're not going to find out everything. The question is, are you going to find out enough? But we're not going to get everything, but we will get enough. Many times when in my youth, I would walk into a, 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 a smorgasbord or a buffet or um, a hotel set up, you know, like a, a bed and breakfast or whatever at a hotel. And then they've got all of this food out there for breakfast. And my first thought was, I can't eat all of this but I'll try. <laughs> well, we have that idea about knowledge too. I can't learn everything, but I'll, I want as much as I can get. I want to know all about it, right? Rather than recognizing, no, there's a point where we can have enough. And so this is also part of wisdom, is to recognize that we've gotten enough, but we still need to continue to investigate. That investigation is back uh, one's right view. You can actually see that in the word. In other words, if you viewed something, like taking a mental photograph of it, then we think we know what it is. But in fact, it might 
change. It might have gotten old. We need to keep looking, reinvestigate it from time to time to make sure. An example of that would be a network administrator. Just because he brought the network up and everything, every hard drive and every uh, connection is there, doesn't mean that it's going to stay that way. He's got to keep checking. Got to keep checking, make sure everything is up. All right, so this is what we then mean by the Eightfold Noble Path is a process that starts at an ordinary state and then becomes noble. So there's actually two paths. The first path is, in fact, Sila Samati Panya. That's the beginner's path, starting with seclusion, purifying the mind, and then uh, beginning to see the reality of the situation. Once they see the uh, more clearly through right noble view, now the path changes completely. Well, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has said, wait a minute, why do we need to do that kind of practice when we can start the students very quickly into the noble practice? That let's not start with sila samati panya, especially a long time sila. That we can actually just start immediately by getting away from it all, and now our sila is perfect. Okay, if the sila is perfect in the beginning, with no place else to go because we've gotten those kind of thoughts out, now we can go immediately to the noble path in the sense of developing wisdom and samadhi together. Now, wisdom and some, uh, samadhi together, I'm kind of making a slight change in the, in the definition of the word samadhi, giving a more conventional definition of it. But if we go back to the fact that uh, real samadhi is gathering together the factors, then we can see that um, we're working with Samati and uh, Anya together. And that the outcome then is a purified sila that's really pure because if the mind is finally completely organized, completely unified, then there is no um, desire need a reason to uh let us say break the precepts if people break the precepts out of several reasons one out of uh wanting things that they don't have greed ill will and delusion and also out of habit once they start greed ill will and delusion they get in the habit of greed ill will and delusion and they begin to live their lives in greed ill will and delusion suffering the uh um, the ramifications of the results of that. But when we come out of that kind of thinking into the thinking of <clears throat> having the mind in a very pleasant state and developing that uh, sukha and the, and the other factors, now the mind is really fit for work. So another way of talking about it is 
that in the Mahashi method, they teach the students noting first. That's the first thing that they teach. The problem with that is, is that the students are taught to note whatever is there. Well, if whatever is there is stinky garbage, then that means that there's going to be a whole lot of noting of stinky garbage. If there is fear in the mind and they're doing Mahasi noting, then they're going to be noting a lot of fear. If there is disgust in the mind and they're doing the Mahasi method of noting, then they're going to note a lot of disgust. If there is despair in the mind and they're noting it, then they're going to be noting a lot of despair. Actually, uh, these three things, fear, misery, disgust, despair, are actually part of the um, stages of insight of the Mahasi method. Well, what that means is, is that the mind is not free from hindrances because fear, misery, disgust, and despair are actually hindrances. So if they take that misery, disgust, and despair out of the mind as soon as it's noted with one's right effort, then now when they're noting, they're noting being free from misery, being free, free from fear, being free from disgust, being free from despair. And that's the better way of noting, is noting that that stuff is not there. All right, which is actually going in the direction of the teaching of sunyata. Emptiness. So we begin to note that the mind is, in fact, free from suffering, free from uh, fear, free from uncomfortable, unhappy miseries, free from being disgusted with things, especially disgusted with our own mind. So we become free from those kind of hindrances. And now we can practice correctly, which is actually then if we get the mind in a really good state and that the, the thoughts are wholesome, that the mind is wholesome, now everything that there is to note in the Mahasi method is wholesome stuff. And surprisingly enough, there's a sutta that talks about it just that way. It's sutta number 111, which is one by one, and sometimes also referred to as one by one as they occur. And basically what we're talking about is the things that occur in the mind once the mind is in a very wholesome, healthy state. Then the things that are to be noted one by one as they occur are all wholesome, healthy things that happen in the mind. So now we're beginning to understand what the mind looks like when it's in a healthy state. That we can recognize the mind in an unhealthy state later when it's in an unhealthy state, but it's best to get to know what the mind is like when it's in a healthy moment, a healthy state. And so now we do the noting. And one of the things that we're going to note is one thought after another is a wholesome thought. We apply the mind to the wholesome and we keep it on the wholesome and then we guard that or we note that one thought after another is a wholesome thought.
And so we go back to the original question that so many students have. What is a wholesome thought? And the answer to that is a wholesome thought is to be determined through investigation. That this is this is part of the um, the process of developing the skill of right view is to have that discernment to know what is a wholesome thought and what is an unwholesome thought. But we've got some very, very good um, guidelines or some indicators that will help us to understand in general what is wholesome and what is unwholesome so that we can apply that general rule then when we're looking at this particular thought. To determine is this particular thought a wholesome thought or not? Well, guess what? If you are actually remembering to take a look and ask the question, is this a wholesome thought or not? That's a very wholesome thing to do. That's a good process. It's a whole lot better than having that unwholesome thought and not even asking a question about is it wholesome or not? So in actually doing the investigation, is um, certainly a uh, move in the right direction. An example of that would be that uh, there has been a crime and the police have come and set up all of the boundaries and the yellow tape and all of that to set up the crime scene. And then the detectives don't come to the crime scene. They don't come to the crime scene. They don't take a look at it. They're not knowing what's going on. If they don't come to the crime scene, if they don't do the investigation, they're not going to ever figure out what happened. So that's the same way that we have it with our own mind, that if we're actually in there investigating, that's a very wholesome thing to do. And in the job of doing that wholesome thing of investigating and asking the question, is this thought a wholesome thought or not? we'll begin to get some insight into it. And we can, as I said, have some guidelines. We understand the, the five hindrances as five hindrances, uh, not in the sense of there, there is that specific hindrance and that specific hindrance and that specific hindrance, and there's only five of these specific things. That's the way that a lot of people look at the hindrances. Rather than looking at the entire group of unwholesome thoughts can be divided into five groups. That's a much better way of looking at it. In other words, there is that hindrance, that hindrance, that hindrance, and that hindrance, and that hindrance. And everything else is wholesome. That's not the right way to look at it. The right way to look at it is, is that there is wholesome and there is unwholesome. And that for, the, for the most part, most of our thoughts are unwholesome because they fit into one of these five categories. So when we understand those five categories, then we can understand whether this thought fits into one of those categories or not. The other thing that's very interesting about these hindrances is that they kind of stack up. One will uh, cause another, which will, will cause another. Restlessness and doubt work together 
very, very well. So that if restlessness comes, then part of that restlessness will be doubt. Now, when we talk about restlessness, often we talk about both restlessness and worry. And when we understand worry, worry basically is trying to find the solution to a, an old problem. It's not a brand new problem. It didn't arrive a, a second ago. It's old, maybe a day or two or a month. Some problems or some worries we have are years old. And there's all kinds of things to worry about. But almost always when we're worried, we're worried about the past in order to fix the future, past and future oriented. But in this present moment, there's no problem. In other words, I can dream up of something that needs to be done but just because right now I'm not doing it doesn't mean that there's a disaster, that everything is okay right now, whether that happened to get finished or not. And yet a lot of people will have the idea, I cannot rest, I cannot feel good, I cannot be satisfied until the work is completed. So the task is done. And so they go into meditation hall sit down on the floor and then start worrying about all of the unfinished business that they have. And that's a hindrance. And in a way, by having those kind of worries, their sila is also not perfect. It's not pure. They're worried about something. And, and if they're worried about something, they'll go to any lengths in order to finish that job and the any links that they'll go to may in fact harm someone. So uh, this idea of wondering uh, and understanding what the hindrances are is actually part of the investigation to recognize when, whole, when some thoughts are unwholesome and need to be thrown out and that you can immediately understand that any thought that you throw out, if you, if that thought is giving you any, um, any worries at all, or if it's in the past and the future, then you'll probably feel better if you stop having that thought and start having other thoughts, thoughts of this particular moment. So this is how we're, we begin to practice is just coming into the here now is mostly the solution because look, in order to be in the here now, you had to remember to be in the here now. You had to remember to look at the mind and investigate it to see whether it was in the here now or not. And if it wasn't, then we have to take the right effort to throw it out of uh, the hindrances out so that we now can come into the present moment. So we apply the skills of the Eightfold Noble Path in order to bring on the, uh, the gathering of the factors of Anapanasati in order to push the mind in a really, really good state. Okay. There's another point that we can make about this, Tyler, and that is, is that in the time of the Buddha, 
even though the word Vipassana and the word Samatha actually do exist in the suttas, they're not ever related together, nor are they common words. That in fact, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, the word Vipassana happens more often as topic headings that he has put into the text to help the students. But the word Vipassana is not going to be in that set of paragraphs. But he's just popped that word in there to, to help the students understand what's going on. So the word Vipassana and the word Samatha were not really that big a deal in the time of the Buddha. But when we look at later suttas, for instance, in the Anguttara Nikaya, we find about a, a dozen or so suttas that do address this issue, but it is addressed in a way to make it a, not an issue. In other words, later when the issue came up, there were suttas written to point out that this is not an issue. Okay, but you can see where the Western mind has got attached to that, which is the way to go, Vipassana or Samatha. A better way of thinking about it is that Samatha and Vipassana are two wings of a bird, and birds don't fly well with one wing. So, uh, one of the suttas that we're talking about then says that if you have Vipassana, then your job now is to develop Samatha. And if you have Samatha, your job is to develop Vipassana. And that if you don't have either one, then develop them both together. Another way of talking about that is that uh, the Buddha in Sutta number uh, 10 in the Satipatthana Sutta talks about um, Ekamaga, which is the Pali that has to do with the straight path or the direct path. Now, when Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa referred to that, uh, uh, he would do it in the Thai, which I didn't quite understand uh, much at the time, still don't. But Santa Carl would translate that as to the shortcut. And that uh, I took note of that, just thinking that all oh, that just means that Santa Carl is um, uh, uh, trying to understand it himself. And so he's taken what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has said and put it into his English. But then later I found out that no, actually in the Thai translation of the Pali, the word shortcut is there. And that in Thailand, that's the word for it, shortcut. Now think about the word shortcut is taking the diagonal, that if you've got a cross street, let us say um, an avenue and a street, and you're going down this block and then over that block, kind of a square, you got to go from A to B before you go from B to C. And the Buddha is saying, no, you go directly from A to C. You don't have to go to B first. You just go directly to your goal. You don't go take a, uh, a detour. Now, the way that that detour is normally set up is that people think that the right way to practice is develop a whole lot of concentration. Mm -hmm. And when they get all the concentration done, then they can do 
Vipassana. And the Vipassana crowd says, no, we do Vipassana first in the beginning and Samatha will be added on at a later time. <clears throat> but in reality, both Samatha and Vipassana are kind of not the point. What do I mean by that? They're kind of not the point means is that it's um, uh, Vipassana happens once we're using one's right view of doing the investigation. If we're doing an investigation, then we're likely to see something we haven't seen before. And that seeing something that we haven't seen before is the Vipassana. That in fact, uh, the word Vipassana has to do with with passage of through something and that the word be means into. So when you go into things that are passing by, that means that now you can see them deeper. That's what the word Vipassana means to where the word Samatha. Actually. Uh, just means that the mind is um, not in turmoil. Well, now here we can look at that because an actual camera and the developmental uh, development of film cameras over time is a good way of looking at this. In the very, very early days of cameras back in the 1860s, that uh, the silver nitrate plates that they used to, to make the, uh, the negatives was not very high quality. And for that reason, you had to have the, um, uh, the shutter open for a long period of time. Then in fact, the way that they would do it would be that the guy would, would have the cup that he would just take off, exposing the light then through the, um, uh, the lens onto the plate and they would hold it open for several seconds. So everybody had to hold really, really still in order to get a good shot. That whole mentality has developed along with us. So now we have really, really high feet film. So that the camera doesn't have to be so steady because it's only going to have the aperture open for just a tiny short period of time. Okay. This is basically what we're getting at is, is that the mind, if it has stability, then we can stay focused long enough to see what's going on. But if the mind is shaky, in other words, I see this thing starting and then I watch it continuing and then it comes to the end, then I know that process. But if I start to see the process starting, and then I start thinking about this, that, and the other thing. And then I come back into the process a little bit later and see this. And then I start thinking about that and go off someplace else and then see the end of the process. Then all I've seen was the beginning, a piece of the middle and the end of it. But I didn't see the whole thing. There may be many things in there that I missed. But if I, if the mind is stable and is capable of staying put, on this stuff where there's some stability, then that means that I can see things a whole lot better. This is the real relationship between Samadhi and, excuse me, Samatha and Vipassana is that we have to remember to keep looking and 
That's the stability. If we keep looking, keep looking, remember to keep looking, then we can investigate and we can see what's going on. But if the mind is jumping around, then it'll jump from that object to something else and then back to that object. And we think we've been watching it the whole time, but in fact, the mind had wandered away. So this is the process of, of seeing that. And so we use the breathing and the beginning with that sati. And this is an important point is, is that it's not just, oh, taking a breath and then that's it. But we want to actually use the breath to help develop the skill of sati. That's why it's called anapanasati, in the sense of remembering that this is an in-breath, a long, deep in-breath, and to remember that this is a long out-breath. And so we start paying attention to the breathing every breath. Is this a long breath in, and is this a long breath out? This is very handy because that means that now, on the in-breath, we have sati. On the out-breath, we have sati. On the next in-breath, we have sati. On the next out-breath, we have sati. To remember that this is a long, deep breath. That gives us also plenty of other time within that breath to do a lot of other investigation. Or that's time for the mind to wander away. When the mind wanders away, that'll it'll take the opportunity. It'll wander away and then later, we remember that all oh, we've forgotten and the mind has wandered away. And so we bring it back to the Anapanasati and, and start again. But if we can remember to take that long in breath and then later to remember to take that long out breath, then our Sati is getting pretty strong and we can remember to stay in the vicinity of what the mind is doing. And we can stay centered without the mind wandering away into hindrances. So basically, we say then the hindrances is just the mind wandering away from whatever our intended purpose is, which is to watch what's going on in this present moment. Well, when we're, when we're watching the breathing, we actually are now paying attention to the body and in, in the sensory awareness of touch. That nobody stands or sits in front of a mirror to watch their breathing. We don't watch the breathing with the eyes. We watch the breathing with feeling, with, with touch sensation. Which means now that we're bringing into the awareness. Normally, we either have eyes and ears or thoughts. Those are the three primary ones. But when we're bringing Anapanasati into it, we're actually bringing back one of the most important ingredients that we, as children, stop paying attention to. Children stop paying attention to their bodies when they start paying attention to their ABCs. So with Anapanasati, we're actually getting back in touch with the body. And the intention is, is to know the body in the sense of knowing it so that we can relax it begin to notice where the tensions are and we can relax as I breathe in I breathe in and expand that area and as I breathe out I relax relax but in fact this step four of Anapanasati to relax the body is actually a fairly key ingredient to the first jhana 
that if somebody has all of the jhana factors and yet they're still the body is tense and uptight it's still not a very good first jhana that you actually have to add in the relaxation of the body well now in some methods like the Gogwanko method they actually talk about strong determination sittings which means how long you sit is important because they want you to get the body into a state where it's in pain. The Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says, no, don't do that. The whole point is to relax the body. So if you're sitting for a long time and the body is no longer relaxed because it's stiff and in pain, then it's better to relax the body by moving it and getting the body back relaxed again. That most beginners are not ready to do a strong determination sitting, and it should not be taught in a beginner's 10-day course. Leads to a lot of frustration and anxiety and also pride and jealousy. But if we understand though, but in the beginning, we have to practice in a way of getting the body relaxed and keeping it relaxed. Then if we can master that technique, then we can relax and stay sitting longer and longer and longer and still stay relaxed. So this whole idea of relaxation is a key ingredient to the Samatha. That in fact, relaxation is a better translation of the word Samatha though it's often used uh, with words like tranquility. And, and whenever I hear the word tranquility, I always think of tranquilizer guns and, and lions that are just completely passed out so that they can put on a radio collar or do some surgery or something like that. And so in that regard, tranquilize means completely out of it. And so tranquilizing is not a good use uh, word to use for this that basically just relaxation relaxed comfortable that's the way to look at it so if we can get the body and the mind completely relaxed now we can see things better than if we could when we were agitated just like a camera that's agitated can't see can't make good photographs that's why we want a, a, a camera to be on a tripod, for instance, especially if you're doing telephoto work, because the handheld camera, just enough handshaking is enough to destroy the photograph. So uh, uh, you can think then of um, correct practice of Sila Samati Panya then is basically getting the whole body mind complex into a stability so that we can see. When the body is relaxed, when the mind is relaxed, when we're paying attention and alert and relaxed, then we can begin to see these things pop up as hindrances. And when they pop up as hindrances, then when we can say, aha, I can see you. I see you hindrance. Rather than jumping on that hindrance and riding off into the uh, uh, the swamp. We can recognize it, not go there. And we can keep our mind in a very happy, contented state so that we can continue to see 
what's really going on. Okay, so today we have talked about the Eightfold Noble Path and the application of it from the perspective of the beginner of Sila Samati Panya. But then we later make a change to that and use Samati and C, uh, Samati Panya together to develop the uh, the Samati mind, which is a unified mind, not a concentrated mind. It's not a rock. I don't know why we use that word concentration other than that it was just a bad translation from the very beginning and it's just gotten stuck. I think also that uh, Asians, when they learn the English language, they actually don't learn the word concentration. They learn it in the sense of the, the, the actual diamond, so they continue to use the word concentration, but people who speak the native language, when they hear the word concentration, that they could do something completely different. Hmm. Okay, so this is an important point to recognize that stamati does not mean concentrated mind. And when you see people trying to practice concentration, they're working really hard. They're really trying to press on it. It's almost like that they're trying to make frozen concentrated orange juice out of the mind by squeezing the water out of it, squeezing the mind. I, I think this has been a, a hard part for me, too, is that I, I I'm, an, I'm an engineer and I often sometimes I, I found myself approaching meditation as if I was an engineer of like thinking it's a linear process and that I just have to focus really hard and get it done. But I think a lot of what I've been realizing what you've been saying is that like it's actually very nonlinear, like both, you know, sila to, to, uh, to panya is nonlinear and because it goes it goes back and forth, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And then and it's not something I can like will myself and like focus really hard and make it happen. It has to kind of flower on its own, it sounds like, you know? So it's been a, it's been a hard mental shift, <laughs> mental shift for me. That's, that's exactly what happens. So changing our frame of reference from concentration, which is trying to work at something, into merely gathering the, uh, the factors together, is very, very much like Little Red Riding Hood or a little girl traipsing through the, the pasture, picking flowers. And when she's got her basket of flowers, then she's got all of her factors together. She's got a basket of flowers. That's the samadhi when you've gathered flowers together. Other people say, oh, she has concentrated those flowers together. And that would be a way of using the word. Yes, we have concentrated those flowers by gathering them together and putting them together. But other people say, no, that's not concentrated. We got to pound those, fl those flowers. We got to boil them <laughs> or, or do something. We've got to beat them into shape and then they're concentrated to get the essence out because those flowers, I mean, we're going to make perfume or something like that. And so perfume is the um, is the concentration of the flowers. But in the process, we destroyed the flowers. So that's what concentration does. Concentration often destroys the very thing that we're trying to develop. And we and people work very hard at it. 
but we can understand uh, correctly one's right noble effort is the least amount of effort at all to actually get the right job done. So it has to be just enough. And um, one of the examples that I use for that is imagine that you're standing on a road and a big truck, a lorry, a semi is barreling right down on you and you're standing in the road. We have three choices. We can do the Vipassana method. Excuse me, we can do the Mahasi method. Or we can do the choices awareness or we can do Anapanasati. OK, what is choices awareness is even though I see that truck barreling down on us, even though I see those hindrances in the mind, I don't do anything about them. I just choicelessly aware. I accept that my mind is full of hindrances and then the truck just runs right over you. The other one, the. Uh, uh, the Vipassana method or the Mahasi method is often what I would refer to as the Popeye method. You know, Popeye the Sailor Man, mm -hmm. his great big fist up, and he's going to stand in the road and he's going to stop that truck. That's the method that many people are trying to work. They're trying to force their mind to do something. And they get run over also. But then there's the Vipassana method, excuse me, the Anapanasati method that the Buddha talks about. And that is to merely step out of the road. Isn't that the easy thing to do? One is to stay put and get run over. The other one is to staunchly stay put and get really run over. And the third way is just to step out of the way. This is the practice then of Anapanasati is to gladden the mind, which means to just merely step out of the way, to step out of those hindrances and step into gladdening thoughts. Well, I'm glad I don't have to think about that email anymore. That email was a Mack truck coming down the road. I got to answer it. I got to tell that guy off. I've got, I mean, he told me such a bunch of crap. He's a Republican, you know, and I've got to answer it Democrat, <laughs> right? But when I recognize, oh, wait a minute, that's just another Mack truck trying to run me down. Let me just step out of the way. I don't have to think about that email right now. I'm not going to write the email right now. So why should I think about the email right now? In fact, if I were really wise, when I start to write the email, I can recognize then, too. I don't have to write this email. I don't have to answer this. There's nothing really to do here. And so we begin to then go into that state of Wu Wei of really doing things by not doing so much anymore. That we recognize the reason and the rationale for doing those things was based in hindrances. It's because I wanted something. I wanted to tell that guy off. Until I recognize that that's no pleasure at all because I'll have to read his email when he sends it back. That's even more ferocious than the first one. <laughs> but if I don't answer him, then I've got no problem. So this is the way we begin to see it is, is that the hindrances of the mind keep us agitated and out of the present moment, giving us work to do 
that we don't really have to work. I'm okay right now. I don't have to do anything. When I think about writing a Dhamma book, then the thought comes, well, there, we've already got enough Dhamma books. What, am I going to write a book for somebody to buy and then go put on a bookshelf? There's already enough books. There's plenty of books. Why should I write another book? And so then we wind up with nothing to do. Got no place to go, nothing to do, and I can just sit and relax. I don't have to write that book after all. I don't have to answer that email after all. But the beginning is I don't have to answer it right now. I don't have to write that book right now. Right now I can just sit and enjoy life. So sitting and enjoying life then, actually, I can actually sit here and enjoy life is the Vipassana itself. But sitting here and enjoying life is the relaxation or the samatha. So this is the way we look at it is samatha and vipassana are not separate, they're the same thing. There's no distinction. And we can think of it like that in with the camera, that if the camera is stable, it'll take a good photo. And if the stable and the camera is not stable, if it's flying through the air, while it's taking a photo, it's not going to get a good photo. So this is why we want to bring the mind to that point of freedom from hindrances, which means freedom from the monkey mind so that we can just keep it in the wholesome. Just keep it wholesome. That's all we have to do. We don't have to concentrate it or focus it or force it or anything. Just step out of the way of unwholesome things. This is the way to practice. And that's also not only the way to practice, but we're practicing that because that's the way to live. To live our lives completely free from suffering and sorrows and whatnot and extra work that we don't need to do. Just enjoy life. There's no place to go and nothing to do. And the spring comes and the grass goes by itself. And so this is the kind of training that we want to put in. The training of getting ourselves satisfied. The training of getting ourselves relaxed. The training of getting the kind of thoughts out of the mind that keep us from being relaxed. Now, all of this that we've been talking about, these gathering of these factors together, is actually the first jhana. And here I've been talking about first jhana for more than an hour and haven't even used the word first jhana yet. Why? Because if I start using first jhana in the beginning, then people will get, oh, first jhana is this big. Oh, wow. Oh, he's talking about first jhana. Oh. <laughs> Because in some respects, we've made first jhana a great big deal. And the reason that it's a great big deal is because people are trying to get to it through concentration. Rather than getting to it through relaxation. 
relaxation is the right way to go. Just relax. Relax the mind, relax the body, relax the breathing, and relax the feelings. So I think that we've relaxed enough now. <laughs> Do you have any questions about this? Um, I have one one question. If you have another moment, um, I was I was curious about kind of in my everyday activities. Like, let's say I'm washing dishes. You know, in Mahasi they would say, you know, you do feel like washing, washing, as as you're noting, right? Would you recommend kind of still focusing on your breath, uh, doing like anapanasati, like during your everyday activities as well? rather than focusing on the sensation. Well, of it would not make very much sense to uh, to watch your breathing while washing dishes if you stopped breathing while washing dishes. <laughs> but if you are continuing to breathe while you're washing dishes, then you can add those two things together. Got it. Okay. As I'm washing dishes, I'm breathing in and breathing out. Okay. Um, what they're actually talking about here is a later thing, but they give that to the beginners in the sense of just washing, washing. Basically, what, what we're really talking about is that if the mind is free from hindrances, if it's a void mind, this void of all of the other kinds of things, then whatever activities we are doing, we can do with gusto because we have gusto for life. We have enthusiasm for life, so we can wash the dishes with enthusiasm as opposed to washing them with drudgery. And most of the time we wash the dishes and not like washing dishes, but we do it because it's got to be done. So we do it because it needs to be done. We go along with it, but we don't like it. Mm. And so the mind is generally full of hindrances. And so when the Mahasi method says of uh, washing, washing or rubbing, rubbing, at least the word rubbing, rubbing in the mind is not uh, as bad as I hate these dishes. <laughs> right. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. Okay. But a much better way of doing it would be if the mind is already completely free from hindrances. Now we can actually enjoy what we're doing. Because Buddha also has a poem of that, that whatever you're doing, do it with a mind that's void so that you can do it completely. There's actually a passage in the Bible that points to this. Whatever thy hand findeth to do, do with all thy heart, strength, and mind. In other words, when you're doing something, you need to pay attention to what you're doing. Okay, here's an example of that. There is a particular case to where there is a whole bunch of files, like maybe eight, ten thousand files and that some of these files are duplicates, but that the name of the files are not exactly the same, but there are, um, let us say, we're talking about movie files. And so if you've got a movie that's twice, 
it'll have the same name, but it'll have other characters in the name of the file so that a file duplication cleaning program can't find them. And so there the eyes are going down through all of the files one after another. Is this a duplicate of that? Is this a duplicate of that one? Is this a duplicate of that one? Down like that. And sometimes because of periods and dots and things, the duplicate will be five or six files up or maybe even a page or two up because they're not exactly in alphabetical order. So if someone is going to be cleaning these files, so long as they're continuing to just look, just look, just look, just look, then they're going to find the duplicates. But if three or four minutes later they have the thought, this is a lot of work. Oh, wow, look at how much work there is to do because I've only got 100 files done and there's 7,000 files here to do. And this is all. Oh, and now we're adding something to the task that's actually taking away from the performance of the task. We're having thoughts about how hard this work is. And while we're thinking about how hard the work is, we're making the work hard. And by making the work hard, we don't enjoy it. But if we're there enjoying what we're doing, aha, I caught that one. I can see that one. And so we start um, going with the success rather than how much work there's left to do. How much work there's left to do is in the future. How much work I've done is in the past. Aha, I caught that one. That's at the present moment. That makes sense. Thank you. Okay. So, while we're doing a job, while we're doing a task, what's in the mind in that moment as we're doing that task? If we're actually, if the mind is free from hindrances, then there is, a, it can be called a task, but it's just another toy to play with. Aha, I saw you. I got that one. I found that duplicate. Or whatever we're, we're doing. So we begin to enjoy our work. When the mind is void and we are applying the whole mind to the task, the task becomes an easy thing. The task becomes a toy to play with. But if we go into that task with mixed mind, as mixed with hindrances, oh, I want to get the job done, it's supposed to be done, I need to get it done, but I don't want to do it. That's the normal way we approach all of our tasks. That's why we call it a job. That's why we call it work is because we don't want to do it. And the Buddha would recommend don't do things that you don't want to do. Get your mind in a condition so that you like doing it and then you can go do it and do it with glee, do it with gusto, do it with enthusiasm and do a good job of it. So getting the mind straight and then doing the work is a much better thing than doing the work first and still being dissatisfied with it. Mm -hmm. So getting the mind in the state of satisfaction, that's the task. Once we get the mind satisfied to now we can do anything while we are satisfied. But most people think, oh, I can't get satisfied until after I finish the job. And when I finish the job, then I can be satisfied. And the whole time they were doing the job, they were dissatisfied. 
with this method, you can do the whole job. And while you're doing the whole job, you can be completely satisfied. And then when the job is finished, yippee, now it's done. And I'm really satisfied. That's very clarifying. Thank you. Okay. Well, let's finish this talk now and we'll continue on, Tyler. This has been a really great talk. I really enjoyed especially your smiles and reactions and understanding. It's good that we can get it put together so that people can understand what correct practice is. Definitely. Thank you. And I, I really enjoy our time together and very, very grateful for it. Thank you. Well, we'll see you soon. All right. Take it easy. Bye.